0: And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolfe back from their longest break ever on the Coot Street
1: Broadcast! And we're back. It's the end of the year. It's the Christmas season. It's the New Year's season. And I bet you did not notice this. We are recording this which on what would have been Philip K. Dick's 90th birthday. I can honestly say that I was
0: unaware of that fact.
1: Well, what's appalling, or not appalling, but... Unnerving is that Philip K. Dick Could still be alive 90 isn't that much Brian Aldous made the
0: past 90 Okay, let's be clear 90 is that much, but yes He could still be alive, you're right He died young in, what was it 1982 I think it was Something along yeah. along. So he certainly could have lived Into the 21st century Without a doubt And there's no doubt that more than any other science fiction writer In the world His view seems to haunt us more you know, I mean, one of the things we'll be talking about today is our comments and observations and whatever else about the, you know, the year we've just gone through. And I suppose at some point we may talk about film, and that would lead to Dennis Villeneuve's long, long,
1: loud film, 2046 Blade Runner 2. Well, that's one of the 2049. Uh, one of the things that. that See, I wanted to be shorter. Really. Uh, yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's getting closer. But, yeah, what would, we don't, we we, we have some notion of what Philip K. Dick thought of the original Blade Runner in rough cuts. He was very impressed by the effects. He was impressed with what the future looked like. I don't remember whether he actually saw the finished film or not. What he would make of Blade Runner 2049, I have no idea, let alone things like Arrival, let alone the whole Star Wars phenomenon, the whole, the fact that there's a series uh, of, uh, Philip K. Dick's stories appearing on cable starting in January, mm, yeah, uh, yeah. Electric Dreams. And would he even recognize his old stories? His old stories? I have no idea. Would he rec- I don't think he would really have been very pleased with things like Total Recall. Um, Probably not. I mean, but who knows? If he had survived – well, actually, th-
0: one of the questions you'd have to ask yourself is would the Philip K. Dick phenomenon have survived Philip K. Dick's survival? Would he have permitted
1: the making of a lot of the things that have, have been made? Uh, my guess is uh, – it's an interesting question because this is going to be the weirdest comparison we've come up with uh, in, in, in many weeks on the podcast even though we haven't recorded anything. Philip K. Dick could have been like P.L. Travers who was furious at Mary Poppins and and wrote into her a will that if if – if Mary Poppins is ever made into a film or a musical or player, the Disney people will have nothing to do with it whatsoever. She was furious. Uh, And would Philip K. Dick have been furious like that? Did he think he had that kind of a legacy? The other side of what I know about Philip K. Dick is he was a struggling writer trying to make money. And he thought if Hollywood's going to throw he might've thought if Hollywood is going to throw money at me, he would have taken the James M. Kane approach, which is, Hey, the books are there. They haven't been messed up. You can still read them. I don't know. I I think one thing that begins to
0: happen, though, is as success finds you, as you begin to have more and more money, and he would have had more money quite quickly, I imagine, because of Blade Runner, then you have a lot more freedom of choice. And you can turn around and say that an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie based on one of my stories isn't something I want to see happen, or a Tom Cruise adaptation of one of my stories, and so on and so forth. All of which made the estate a phenomenal amount of money and you know i could imagine him pushing for i don't know a netflix tv series of valis or something just to completely sort of do with your head
1: well there were there were films that were uh, we, we, we've mentioned this before films that were reasonably in sync with with dick's own later um attitudes and and writing one of them was radio free albemouth and radio free albemouth is my argument as to, uh, as to why a book should never be particularly particularly loyal to its source, especially when that source is bonkers, <laughs> which was the case here. You, you, have, you had a bonkers movie made by people who didn't seem to be able to make out what was going on in the novel, which I do not blame them for at all, but I'm guessing that Philip K. Dick might have enjoyed that more than – that and um, A Scanner Darkly yeah. might have been the two movies he would have liked.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting thing. Now, we're here, I guess, as much as anything to wind up the year. We've taken two months off, yeah. I think it was, whilst I distracted myself and, and fulfilled other commitments. I mean, I've now delivered my year's best. It's in copy edits, and it will be out a month early and all those sorts of things. And exactly. you know, recommended, locus Recommended Reading is well-progressed. So we're all in good shape for that. So we can, we can turn our thoughts to this. So I guess I want to throw the opening question to you because I'm, I don't particularly want to go through a long list of things. What was your favorite science
1: fiction novel of the year? Your f- favorite novel of the year? Okay, that's, those are two different questions. Um, one of the things that came up, one of the, one of the venues that I write reviews for, uh, which is not Locust asked me to come up with one book, which was the best book of the year that I cover. And I wrote back to them and said, I can't really... Okay, this is the Chicago Tribune. As far as they're concerned, fantasy and science fiction are the same thing. And I would have probably a favorite novel in each. And they're completely different genres. My favorite novel in fantasy this year would have been John Crowley's Ka. But my question
0: for you is, what's your favorite novel? Whether it be science fiction, fantasy, mainstream... Whatever. What's your favorite novel I, of the year?
1: I would say as a novel, the Crowley novel is the most impressive.
0: But is it your um, favorite? The one you liked best? The one you enjoyed the most?
1: Oh, enjoyed.
0: You well, remember enjoyment? I, the- I mean, the thing that everybody else is listening for recommendations about. There's no doubt that Crowley's car, which he has intimated in, in reviews, ma- interviews may be his final novel, uh, mm-hmm. is vastly accomplished. That's great.
1: Wonderful. Set it aside. But it's also,
0: what did you it's enjoy also, the most? No, no. Okay. What
1: did you enjoy the most? I don't like might You enjoy things in different ways. Mm-hmm. The other. The, OK, the two science fiction novels, which I was going back and forth with, that I both enjoyed and both of them immensely uh, would have been Stan, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, New York 2140 and Annalee Newitz's Autonomous, uh, which is a pirate story. It's a pirate story with drugs and dope and shadowy corporations. It's a it's kind of thing well, we had talked earlier uh, a little bit about um, futurist fiction, fiction that is based on reasonable uh, sort of projections of the future. Annalie had a reputation as a journalist. She's done a lot of good uh, research into futurology. She knows the issues involving the pharmacological industry and corporate takeover, But she wrote, she writes a novel about a pirate in a submarine. It's terrific. She's having a lot of fun with it. And Stan Robinson's novel uh, was, I think, an important novel in that it represents a major shift in the way science fiction deals with ecological catastrophe. Uh, it is, as he described it when we talked to him, a kind of um, comedy of manners set in a post Inundation, in New York City. In other words, no longer are these writers dealing with awful warnings. They're not saying we we need to avoid this. They're not they're not writing novels like Stan Robinson was writing with his Science in the Capital trilogy, saying we must do something to stop this. They're now writing novels saying this is inevitable. This is the future. And now we'll write novels about how we make the best of it.
0: I would agree with you on both of your choices. I have not read car and someone would have to make a significant case to me about reading car because I am awfully afraid of it. I think it is going to be slow and mesmeric and immersive and I would get, I would buy a copy and get 60 pages into it and go and do something else. And that's how that is. Mm.
1: That
0: can Uh, happen. uh, So it's not a book that has beguiled me from afar though. Crowley is someone I like I love his short fiction but Mm -hmm. at novel length I would like to like his short his novels but I have not liked his novels I've not enjoyed the experience of reading them Mm -hmm. I I would say and I'm happy for you to try to make a case in a minute that I'm wrong and that me and the reader should all go out and and read it but my favorite Novel of the year, I think, on balance is New York 2140 as well by Stan Robinson. It's my favorite Mm -hmm. book for a range of reasons. It's funny is the
1: first thing. People don't talk about it often enough. It has really funny parts to it. It has real humor. It has really likable characters in it, some of whom are kind of classic character types, even from Victorian novels. It's got mudlarks in it kids who dig in the mud for stuff. Yeah,
0: it's super engaging. Uh, it has a kind of thriller through line and through parts of it. It switches around and shows you a range of people through a range of experiences. It opens up the future and says, and I realize it, it involves skipping forward over an immensely difficult period, almost blithely, so that you don't shake with horror at it. You know the intervening you know, one hundred and twenty years to get to where it is or one hundred thirty years to get to the, book, to, the to the time of the, of the novel. But it is at its fundamental heart an optimistic novel that says we can deal with the situations we're in and things can work out and improve. And so what it can't, what, what it gives you in what is a very unsettling and disturbing time, is a rational feeling reason for optimism without being blithely naive and that's immensely valuable and heartening uh, when you're reading something these days
1: well that's what I think is that's why I say I think it's a major shift in the way people are, are, are thinking about uh, the future. I, I, I think it's 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 no longer a grim awful warning novel it's there's a point at which the issue of climate change is now beyond the ability of science fiction writers to warn against it. And, and and he's writing a novel about survival, about finding means of survival in a diminished world. Uh, we've seen some other versions of that. I think last year, actually this year, I guess, in, in the States, James Bradley's clade dealt with the notion of how do you survive as a world uh, is diminished. I'm, I'm beginning to read more novels that touch upon that same sort of idea that, uh, and to some extent, Nina Allen's, um, uh, the rift was uh, not the rift, but the one before that, yeah. um, was, was, was a bit like that. So I think that's, a, that's a sea change because it's not simple minded dystopia anymore. No. And I think that the, the, the idea, I, I would love to think the idea that New York 2140 will help us move beyond these increasingly grim and simplistic dystopias. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that simply say, okay, the world is is, is horrible. Yeah, not now now we're in a position to say, well, yeah, the future is probably the future probably sucks, but there is enough faith in humanity and in character to figure out we'll muddle through somehow. I,
0: I have to say, I have lost already my appetite for dystopian fiction in and of itself. There is no great joy I find in reading stories of a destroyed future or a bleak and pointless future you know, existence i don't need optimistic naive fiction but i need some feeling that the, the source of the dystopian discontent is something you're going to get beyond get past somehow in a credible kind of a way and i think that's what i'm looking for in fiction that's what writes to some degree a book like autonomous I mean, Autonomous has all kinds of dystopian background to it. And it's it I mean—it's probably the best science fiction first novel and maybe the best first novel of the year in the genre. Uh, and it, too, is funny at times. And it, too, is very mm-hmm. engaging. And its tr- its trio of characters that sit at its heart are, you know, very, very engaging. I mean, the pirate thing is a small part of the book, really. It's all the rest it's of the, w- the, the stuff that comes with it.
1: It's the beginning. It's a very clever thing because it draws you into the book. Yeah, it does. We we begin with a sea adventure story, which then opens up into issues of artificial intelligence and pharmacological uh, corruption and so
0: forth. Well, it's like if I was going to write a love letter to Autonomous, the first thing I would say is, thank you for only being 300
1: pages long. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, uh, and that's something to be said for New York 2140. Uh, And it's one area in which I believe science fiction – retains an advantage over fantasy. Uh, One of the reasons, one of the things I liked about John Crowley's car, of course, is that it's it's a standalone novel. We're not Mm going to have any novels about this crow. We don't need any more. But the, the major science fiction novels these days tend to be standalone novels. Now, we had again this year, we had an Ian McDonald novel, another one of the Luna novels, which is terrific. And it's part of a, a, a trilogy, but it's it's finite. It's not going to go on and on. You can see the arc in it. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of the fantasy I get in the mail, which I frankly do not read, and it doesn't come to me in the mail from Locus sending it to me. It comes to me from publishers. Publisher. yeah. And it's and the minute I see volume one of uh, that, volume three of pretty much, will put that book right in my mail room pile, uh, but. Can't you just tell a story in a novel anymore? <laughs> well, let's be fair. I mean, science fiction has and
0: fantasy both have an enormous tie back to serials form, forms of storytelling, and so it's cool. hardly surprising or unreasonable to, to to experience, you know, sequel after sequel, and you know, publishing re- you know, reaffirms that it's commercially successful. But there is a lot of there are a lot of standalones out there, Gary. It's just a matter of pushing around and finding them, I suppose. You know, I, I I will say my great failing as a reader is I read the first in the series and I go, I really enjoy that. And I still don't read the rest of it. Ooh. You know, I want to just zero, you know, go back. I don't want to get stuck too much on the, the one thing. Pitch to me, to me and to everybody else who would like to like the books of John Crowley, but have struggled. Why should I hand over 25 bucks to buy, to read Car? Why will I enjoy mm. it? And I don't care that it's important.
1: So tell me why I'm going to enjoy okay, it. Because it uh, okay, first of all, you mentioned the fact that you might get 60 pages into it, and, and, and I don't think that will happen because it is a series of stories within stories. It is a novel that consists of a lot of embedded tales, uh, which means that if you don't like the part of Cod that takes place mm-hmm. in Europe thousands of years ago involving a, a, a girl named Foxcap, Uh, it will eventually turn into another story, and that will eventually turn into another story. And all this is nested within what should be a dystopian story about uh, a near future, the opening line of Ka, which, by the way, for my money, is the best opening line of any novel this year. And because I inadvertently memorized it, I didn't know I'd memorized it until I was quoting it to people. It begins with a sentence, there has come to be a mountain at the end of the world. And you realize, okay, this is a completely destroyed polluted environment that we're living in it's a science fiction world and within this world we get a mythical story of a crow which has somehow survived thousands of years so in, in a way you could read it as a series of novellas many of them are self-contained there's a civil war section which works very well there's a section uh, involving a monk in uh, early renaissance europe that works very well and to some extent my argument would be that if you want to read this as a series of narratives, uh, you can do that. And if the first narrative doesn't appeal to you, the next one probably will. Okay. Let us move along then.
0: Because I don't intend okay. to. I'm, I, I, I'm trying to break this up and not do it quite the way we've done it in previous years. What was your favorite short story collection of the year? You have to read a whole bunch well, of books. I, I, I mean, I, I had a very uh, okay. slow reading year. What was your favorite collection? There were some great ones in amongst everything else. there were award winners there were ones that were fated
1: uh, ones that were overlooked. I know I'm looking right now and boy there were a, there was a good year for short story collection. The first one that strikes my um, that strikes me as being important only because if not only because but partly because it's the first one was uh, Christopher Rose telling the map. Mm-hmm. because these are terrific stories. It's a kind of southern post-apocalyptic south that a part of the country in the United States that we don't see often represented in fiction at all. They're very interesting, subtle fictions, and there was a major new uh, long story in that collection. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an excellent collection of Sophia Samatar stories. No, no, you're listing now. Stop. Don't list. Okay. I asked your favorite. So telling your okay. story... To- okay. My favorite would be the Christopher Roll because I discovered things in it that I didn't know about. Now, caveat to that, a good friend of ours and the podcast and a good friend of mine is Ellen Clages, who had a collection called Wicked Wonders, which I think is a very strong collection, but I knew everything in it before I'd read it.
0: Well, I guess that's true. This is the thing. I mean, I have waxed rhapsodic here on the podcast before about – first collections and the importance of first collections done well and all that kind of thing. And I think they're a particular form. They present the author to the reader in a particular way. I actually think there are two great first collections this year, right? Mm -hmm. Absolute stone cold classics, one of which I loved more than the other. And then there was a series of fine collections by major writers in the field that totally repay everybody's attention, but Uh. had a... You know, an air of familiarity to them. I mean, obviously, and I don't. I mean, I don't want to cheat on you and sort of then list in the background to make it look as I I know what I'm talking about. Uh, but certainly, Ellen Cleges's Wicked Wonders is a great example of a established writer doing what they do well. So is Dear Sweet Filthy yes. World by Caitlin Kiernan. Um, I- you could continue on the two books that stand out though, I mean my favourite collection of the year as well, because it seems like we are clones and you're getting in first is Telling the Map Stories by Christopher Rowe from Small Beer, which has, I mean, Rowe has a wonderful writing voice this sort of southern Kentuckian kind of writing voice that he brings to to his stories, and he has a very localised community kind of storytelling his stories are very intimate and Uh, they deal with average seeming people dealing with average seeming experiences in extraordinary circumstances or extraordinary us. and so I mean I I was fortunate enough to publish several of the stories in the book as I was with the Ellen Klages so you you can take that with the recommendation with a pinch of salt if you wish and the major new novella that's in the book The Border State which is the sequel to The Voluntary State is without a doubt one of the finest novellas of the year And my only fear for it is that it gets overlooked because it's buried within the collection and not not seen as a standalone the way more and more are. Mm -hmm. I love that book very much. The other one, and it's no great observation on my behalf to say this, it was up for the National Book Award. Uh, Carmen Maria Machado's Her Body and Other Parties is just fabulous.
1: I'm reading that right now and I'm... And it was interesting because I'm I'm probably going to review it. Well, it will now be in the February look Because mm-hmm. if it's not there, it means that something seriously wrong happened to me. Apparently, I'd not reviewed it before. I'd not seen it before. Uh, it's astonishing, and it's astonishing in a way that uh, suggests to me um, a healthy movement, a healthy movement which we partly are seeing promoted by small beer press because small beer not only. Dear, did the Christopher O book, they've done, uh, the, they've done um, uh, the the Sophia Samatar book. And that is that Machado seems to be a writer who straddles both worlds. I mean, one of the things we saw this year was uh, it's, it's been a discussion about, uh, about the mainstream versus science fiction. You know, should George Saunders be up for awards for Lincoln and the Bardo because he's a mainstream writer? Machado straddles both worlds. I mean, she went to the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. She's got all the literary cred in the world. But she also went to Clarion. She's had teachers from the field. She knows both sides. She comfortably moves back and forth. Uh, There are bits in it that are hilarious. I've not finished the the collection yet, but I've read more than half of it. And you're right. It's a a stunning collection that, it seems to me, is right in in that new area where it's equally a – Equally of interest to genre readers and to mainstream readers. Mm-hmm. Fair
0: enough. I mean, there were many other fine collections, and I don't want to slight people by overlooking them, but perhaps no. they can look to the Locust recommended reading list that will talk about them rather than here to Coode Street, where maybe we'll keep it much more concise this year. I mean, we've kept ourselves to three novels so far, to two collections basically with a, a side strong recommendation, which is great. Um, I want to touch on Mm -hmm. what I think is the most encouraging trend in, or or, or, no, the most encouraging observation in science fiction and fantasy that I made this year, probably more than in any other recent year, I spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. looking at first novels, Mm -hmm. a lot of time looking at first novels, and there was such an array of them. I mean, we talked about autonomous, which is possibly... I'm actually reluctant to call it my favourite first novel of the year because the other ones were so strong, and this is where maybe it'll get a bit more listy. We did a special podcast about first Mm -hmm. novels. But, you know, I really, really liked Theodore Goss' The Strange Case to the Alchemist's Daughter, which, Mm -hmm. whilst it didn't necessarily do anything particularly new, was nonetheless immensely engaging. She's a very fine writer on a a line-by-line level, and this is her first breakout into a really longer narrative. Wow. And the book's hugely engaging and, and, and entertaining. Um, and then there was Sam... I mean, You've you got that sort of Victorian team-up kind of thing happening with, with Frankenstein's daughter and this kind of thing in that novel. Flip that to a first novel like The Art of Starving by Sam, Sam Miller, which is completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, something like uh, Karen Tidbeck's Amatka, which on one hand is a 2012 first novel in English for the first time you know so that's a different kind of a book you've got Christopher Brown's Tropic of Kansas which is a terrific book on kindness of ghosts which you just reviewed for us uh, by River Sol- Solomon uh, I know it's a second novel so it didn't doesn't really uh, sit in that sit in the same group exactly but I just was reading Gin City by Saad Hussein which is great, it's really great book. I, I had to I had to, I had to buy one of those, Gary's Rangers. but um, what about you, what, what was your feeling on first novels, if you have one, and I'm, I realise that I am actually overlooking deliberately the biggest one out there.
1: Uh, well, I mean, uh, you, you'd mentioned the Theodore Goss thing, and I think one of the things that's interesting, because actually before we started recording, we were talking a little bit of what's happened to steampunk, and is steampunk now a term that refers to any Victorian fiction? The uh, the 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 Theodore Goss novel I think you're right is very accomplished is very knowledgeable and in a way for an academic like myself is very knowledgeable. The other novel that I think of in the same context with that is not a first novel is Molly Tanzer's Creatures, Creatures of Will and Temper, mm-hmm. uh, which do, which which is based very closely in some ways and very loosely in others on Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray. I mean, she turns Dorian Gray into a woman who's Dorina. And for the first half of the novel, it's a good historical novel set in the Victorian era. Uh, And in the case of both uh, Molly Tanzer and Theodora Goss, these are people who understand Victorian fiction, who understand the rhythms of it, who respect it, who uh, are not uh, simply using it as a kind of uh, convenient setting for uh, a kind of bad League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie adventure, so so I, I like the idea that people are, are doing their historical research on that, um, and I, I like both of those novels quite a bit. Um, I think um, trying to think of other first novels. Well, it's, it's it's not a first novel, but one of the big events of the year probably was the completion of Nadia Corafor's Benti trilogy,
0: which is a which didn't finish a this novel, year. It finishes next
1: year. Well, is, is bent. Oh, the, the the Night Masquerade is not out until twenty eighteen. Sorry. Well, okay. It's almost finished. <laughs> we have we have we have freedom to do what we are. want. It's our podcast. Go for it. <laughs> it's it's our podcast. The point is, Bentie Home uh, definitely appeared in twenty seventeen. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it, it was it was it was Nettie's first attempt at interplanetary fiction at science fiction. Uh, although it, it ends up spoiler alert, it ends up back on Earth. Uh, but by and large uh, that strikes me as an interesting way of approaching science fiction it's a it's a sequence of novellas and yep. that brings yep. us to another important trend of the year which is the novella yeah the novella has the novella has been a mainstay of science fiction forever uh, because it was the longest thing you could possibly put in a pulp magazine and and then it sort of became. I, I guess a form of short fiction that risked disappearing because many novellas were too long to put in year's best anthologies because, as you know, and as Gardner knew, and as Judith Merrill knew 50 years ago, you you lose four or five stories to put in a long novella. Well, more. I mean,
0: uh, you look – I mean, a year's best is somewhere between two and 300,000 words usually these days. Uh, the Border State by um, Christopher Rowe, which I would totally have reprinted at the drop of a hat, is 40,000 yeah.
1: words. There you yeah. go. Exactly. Which is five stories, oh. potentially, or six. So the problem forever, and I know I know you and others have occasionally done year's best novellas in science fiction as a way of essentially rescuing novellas from a kind of oblivion. Now, I think, thanks largely to Tor.com, but also to PS Publishing and Tachyon and Subterranean, novellas as standalone books seem to have come into their own in the last couple of years.
0: I'm going to go out on a limb, and I am utterly, you know, sort of compromised because I work with with these people. I work for those these people, and some of my favorite examples of the form this year were ones that I actually worked on, which is, you know, so total compromised. So take it as people will. I put a lot of this this success for the revolution in novellas to at the feet of Irene Gallo personally. Uh huh. I think it's her packaging and marketing sense that's been brought to TOR's way of selling novellas, and then she's been instrumental in putting together a team of people to acquire and publish the novellas, and they come out and they get more attention than they have in a long time. I mean, there are a lot of novellas out there. there to some degree, there always have been, but I mean, this I year, really? I'd to look. And so far in 2017, the Internet Science Fiction Database lists about 550 novellas. Really? as having come out. Now, when I commenced the locus recommended reading list this year, there were 80 novellas on our long list. And yes, they yeah. came from Tor, but I mean, Tor published 30 of them. So even if we listed only the, you know, every single Tor one, and and, and we didn't, uh, not all of them were uniformly loved. Nonetheless, we had them from Asimov, from Analog, from FNSF, from, uh, from, from individual collections like Tender the Samatar one, uh, like the uh, Chris Roy one, lo- uh, from anthologies like Extra Solar, uh, which is Nick Giever's P.S. Publishing uh, thing. Uh, we had s- Subterranean Small Press books, all ki- and and uh, book smugglers ones, and all kinds of other organisations. Uh, novellas all been vying for attention. A lot of quality material. Aqueduct as well, and. They're they're almost like in some cases because there's a willingness to experiment. Um, Aspect. Well, sorry. To, to call back, What was brilliant about what Tor brought to it was the packaging is presenting them really well and professionally as a commercial book. Yep. Everybody else then came to the party and and responded to the fact that they seemed to be doing well. And now there are all these things. Binti's been a runaway success, an enormous success. Um, and so have the books that Sean and McGuire has written for Tor.com. Um, I have to say, so far my own personal favourite novellas of the year that I've that I've read uh, mm. were either ones that I've published, so I'm not sure that I should talk about them. Yeah. Ones that I will publish, so I don't know that I should talk about them. So as an aside, I'd say Dave Hutchison's Akadi, which is a rather interesting space opera set which turns itself on its head by its conclusion but at the beginning is this wonderful engaging kind of space opera yeah. i really 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 enjoyed very much uh james morrow did a terrific story for uh tachyon the asylums of, doc- the asylum of dr caligari obviously net Nettie's story uh binti home which you've already mentioned um I probably wasn't as immediately taken as some people were with uh, the Martha Wells story. All systems red, but that's also been a, a huge hit. Oh, and Peter Beagle had a great story at Tachyon as well in Calabria, and I just read Stephen Graham Jones's Mapping the Interior, which is great. So, and you yeah, see, had, and,
1: and, you'll, you'll now see I, was, I would
0: have talked my way around and not mentioned that I worked on. So,
1: Oh, but we uh, we also talked. Uh, I think maybe the last podcast or two podcast or two ago before our break, we talked with Jeffrey Ford about his. Twilight Pariah, which is great, which is a, a terrific sort of re-examining of, of genre tropes and genre ideas and that sort of thing, and then there, there there are occasionally things that I wouldn't call a novella, because their source material is short children's books to some extent. I would include Kids Johnson's The Riverbank in this. Uh, is is it, it's I don't know whether its length makes it a novella or not. No, no, it's a sixty thousand word novel. It's it's a novel. Okay, so it's a no- it's, it's a novel uh, but it's it, as I was going to say to some extent our genre definitions don't count when you're talking about a novel which is essentially based on a classic children's novel sure and, and, and comes in at that length but uh, I, th- I think that's another uh, very strong sign of uh, what's going on in the field is the ability to revisit no, 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 and, and, and Kidge is not the only one to have done this to have revisited earlier um, kinds of fiction and, and, and reinvented it for, for, for a newer audience. I mean, to some extent, in both of Kidge's famous novellas now, The Dream Life of Vellet Bow*, which won the World Fantasy Award, of course. And this one, she's taking classic, lovable texts, which had problems with them, especially in terms of gender and power issues, and reclaiming them. She's not destroying them. She's reclaiming them in a way. Uh, that I think is fascinating. And I think, uh, having talked to him very briefly in Helsinki, uh, that Victor Laval had something of the same thing in mind with The Ballad of Black Tom, which reminds me, another novel I should have mentioned as one of the important novels of the year was was The Changeling, uh-huh. which I thought was terrific. I think the thing that made
0: The Dream Quest of Ellen Bo work and the thing that makes The Riverbank work by Kibbs Johnson is that in both cases she's not trying simply, and I'm not saying that you've suggested this, to reclaim the fiction, to reclaim the space. I think they are acts of love from a reader trying to find themselves in those stories and texts. And that's there's genuine compassion and a genuine affection for the worlds that are being written about. It, they're not combative takedowns. They're not no, corrections. They are, they are just... An attempt to be in that world as well, which is a very natural thing for any reader to do, I think. Um, so that's why I think they work. And, you know, so the, no, I'm, no, I think you're right. They're genuinely
1: affectionate
0: mm, uh, towards their source. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the two novellas that I worked on, uh, that I think st- stood out that came out this year, I you know, genuinely love Ellen as Passing Strange. Yes. I think it's a fabulous book. I think it's a fabulous story from her. I think it's one of her finest pieces of writing. I think the characters are as well and fully rounded as she's managed. And I think the story is engaging from start to finish. And the timeliness of it can't be questioned. Uh, It Mm. is, you know, it is a guy, what I I guess you'd call it, a, a, a gay time shifting romance about pulp fiction art, amongst other things. Mm -hmm. And it's also a love letter to her adopted home city of San Francisco. And I find that wonderfully engaging from the moment I first saw it. And I also loved Angels of Dreamland by Caitlin Kiernan. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't have any affection for the worlds of Lovecraft. I've never been a great reader of Lovecraft or pretended to be. So I find looking at other ways into those worlds is always interesting. And what I find with Caitlin is that she and I share a cultural background, a popular cultural background through music, film, and other literature that she uses to unpack all of her fiction. Uh, and so Agents of Dreamland, Black Helicopters, which is related to it, all come in from the, this sort of thriller kind of an angle, slanted through a particular kind of alternate rock kind of music and everything else. And the stories are great. I mean,
1: Agents of Dreamland is a really good novella.
0: And it's I really loved
1: working problem, on it. Yeah. The problem I've had with Caitlin Kiernan in the past is there is a tendency toward purple prose, frankly. I mean, her earlier her earlier works were, were ornate and Baroque and the sentences were sort of lovely Elizabethan sentences. Uh, and there was a kind of hypnotic quality that sometimes did not move the narrative forward as much as, as – Uh, as as it could but it seems to me in the last uh, 10 years or so uh, even uh, that she's become a much tighter more efficient writer she's become much more concerned with uh, character and place and less with with her own style Uh, there's there's still moments where I can see a a sentence running away with her but by and large I think she's learned a great deal of discipline uh, during the course of her career she's one of those writers who I uh, had difficulty with at the beginning and who I just have found, it, it could be myself learning how to read her better or it could be her learning discipline better, but I find her more and more and more readable as as, as, as her career goes along. I think she's a, an immensely more efficient
0: writer than she used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, I'd be curious to talk to her about it because I've not, but I would imagine a combination of working on comic scripting which 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 tears everything down to its story element, mm-hmm. and a combination of combined with working on the Serenia Di- Digest, where she has this pressure to come up with, you know, an original story every month, which she's been doing for years now. That kind of thing pushes you towards a certain level of efficiency in what you're doing, and I think yes, her work has become less clotted
1: over time, to to its very great benefit. So. I think race that that raises an interesting point that we should talk about on a separate podcast. Uh, the argument used to be made, um, and this is sounding like an old man again, I know, that writers like, I don't know, Richard Matheson or Charles Beaumont or Ray Bradbury uh, learned efficiency by the simple mathematics of making a living as a short story writer. Mm-hmm. You had to produce stuff. You had to get it out. And you may be right that the Cyrenia Digest does the same sort of thing. One of the things we saw in one of the most interesting short story collections of the year, M. John Harrison's, you should come with me now or you should go with me, is a lot of these things appeared on his website. A lot of these were like short, jape-like things uh, that, that are a lot of fun. They're not short stories by any stretch of the imagination. But again, I think he felt that putting stuff on his website gave him a kind of rhythm that he didn't have between these fairly complex and dense novels that he's best known for writing. Yeah. If you are looking for a
0: book of stories, I suppose we should touch on anthologies. I read probably more of them than you do. Well, Did an anthology stand out for you this year? I mean, last year, obviously, uh, The Starlet
1: Wood was the uh, book the that Starlet, everyone, grabbed everybody's say, attention. but And the anthology, which I was going to mention, which unfortunately was not last year, is... Is the follow- up not really the follow-up, but the same editors uh, is, is, is robots or, series, but that's not out until what January or February That's right. And, and, and so what else did I read in the way of anthologies? I'd have to actually look at this. I'm not sure. You to keep, keep talk among yourselves like, oh, you know what? okay, here's an important anthology. Mm-hmm. Maybe more important to academics like myself. Uh, but it was an anthology put together by Lisa Yasik and Patrick Sharp called sisters of tomorrow which was an anthology of early women science fiction writers uh most of whom are not even known today but they were terrific pulp stories and some of them some of them had women in more significant roles than you would expect some of them were just pulp stories but it was it's a process of rediscovery that i think is important yes well we talked to lisa about it uh, on a podcast earlier in the year yeah Yes. right um uh, the, the other anthologies I'm looking at, I'm trying to think, I've I read a couple of yes to the best of the year anthologies that were pretty good, <clears throat> which is what I tend to depend on for short fiction. And other than that, did I read any significant anthologies at all? Probably not. So you need to tell okay. me what you were. Well, my, f- my favorite two anthologies of the
0: year, uh, and t- t- I guess, okay, t- t- to hit the best anthology of the year for me, the most enjoyable anthology so, of the year. The book had to be consistent and engaging and keep me reading a whole bunch of stories through the whole thing. I find it yeah. immensely easy to pick up a book, read a few stories, set it aside. Maybe I'm not the right reader for it. You know, I mean like Ellen Dattlow did a good uh, collection of Alice in Wonderland stories. Yeah. And honestly, I am not engaged by Alice in Wonderland stories, so it didn't really move me even though I read a couple of good things in it. So the two that I pick out. Gardner just uh-huh. the Book of Swords. Love sword and sorcery. Love epic right. fantasy. He got great people to write great stories. Kate Elliott, Scott Lynch, Daniel Abram, Ken Liu. A right. whole bunch of people. Books really engaging and readable. And if you've got somebody who loves epic fantasy and wants to get introduced to a spectrum of stuff, and it's probably mm-hmm. the best bet out there. I also really loved... Um, Mavesh Morad and uh, Jared Shuren's anthology, "The Jin Falls in Love and Other Stories," which collects a whole bunch of mostly original. Although there's one or one reprint in there, uh, mostly original uh, fantasy, dark fantasy stories around themes of Jin and whatever else. Some terrific stories in it. Uh, I will be shocked if it's not on the World Fantasy Award ballot next year, and if. People haven't read it. That's that. That's the book I would say. I mean, I expect everybody to have seen the Book of Dragons, and then I'd, I'd be so I'd be saying, "Go out and and, and, and grab
1: the Jin Falls in Love. It gets highest recognition for me. The Book of Dragons is a major, a, book of um, thoughts, a major sorry. commercial book, really. Who published the Jin Falls in Love? Uh, Solaris. Okay, so it's. It's getting some attention. And it's, 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 you know, I mean, there are other things. I mean, to me,
0: the odd trend out there in anthology land, which I'll, you know, I'll talk about somewhere else more in detail, is this tendency towards, you know, um, special project fiction, um, you know, workshop stuff, stuff that comes out of uh, think tanks, you know. So you get mm. things like uh, the Flight to the Future project, things like uh, Global Dystopias, which was the Boston Review special right. issue. There are things like um, David Brin's anthology Chasing Shadows, all of which kind of collectively in my mind link back a bit to Hieroglyph and uh, you know, the Neil Stevenson project, and all of which tend to fall into the same kind of flaw that you have fictional narratives that have been pushed into the um, uh, into how would I put this been put into the same space have been have been pushed into somewhere where, where making yeah. fiction work isn't the primary element, right? No, I agree. I mean, I I mean agree. C, 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 C 14 C* is the great example of that. Yeah, you know, you've got two, three thousand words to tell a story, maybe four thousand words to tell a story, and there's all this um, setup that's been provided by the project in this case that you know, everybody's got on, the, on board this aircraft and, right. they've got, and they've left tokyo they've flown to san francisco they get off and it suddenly 20 years later they've, been, they've disappeared for 20 years and reappeared what happens what do they see and it's got to be a feast of wonders kind of experience even though the actual only reasonable response for any one of those people on that aircraft is to be a shivering ball of horror at the fact that everyone they knew is either dead or 20 years
1: older and the entire world is shifted on sorry and, and you're not invited in a scenario like that to to think of the human consequences no. which is which is the flaw with what i think of was futurist fish fiction yeah. going back decades yeah uh, which is that it's it's not it's fiction based not in the idea of story but fiction based in the concept of scenario essentially what you're invited to do is provide a scenario uh, that's what the editors of these things seem to be interested in. They want the scenarios. The story, if you conceive of one at all, is icing on that cake. It's yeah. it's, it's not what the central idea is. And, and and some writers are very good at doing this sort of thing. I've, uh, Kathy, Gunan, for, Kathy Ann Gunan, Kathleen Ann Gunan, uh is very good at writing kind of scenarios that also are human stories. But a lot of other people uh, tend to leave the scenario as is and so you have a story that begins and then essentially doesn't end essentially it's the first chapter of a novel that should never be written
0: yeah yeah okay since we're kind of going through the categories there's a couple of things we might touch on in a minute if we have time did you have a favorite young adult novel of the year gary
1: uh the art of starving sam miller's novel i don't read a lot of young adult novels uh if they come to me they come to me not because they're young adult but in spite of the fact that uh, that they're young about,
0: I'm surprised and I thought you might have gone for akata Warrior, so I'm quite interested that you loved
1: the the art of starving so much that's great well uh, the, the art of starving was the first novel I've seen by Sam Miller. Akata Warrior was a sequel to a novel, although it does deepen and expand things, it seemed to me the reason I would have thought first of the art of starving <laughs> is that the art of starving more expressly and explicitly deals with issues of adolescence. That is, the things that are important in the young adult world seem to me to be central to that novel in a way that they're not central to, uh, to Akata Warrior, which mm-hmm. is, is the second novel of a, uh, of, 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 of a series. And the first novel, in a sense, Akata Witch dealt with those yeah. issues uh, in a way that Akata Warrior doesn't need to.
0: Mine would have been A Skin Full of Shadows by Francis Harding, which I think is a marvelous book by Mm -hmm. a marvellous, marvellous writer. But I have to admit, I fell into reading La Belle Sauvage, which is the new Philip Pullman novel, and the latest in the Northern Lights universe. And I have to say that I was immersed immediately in a way that I've hardly been all year long. You know, I've struggled mm-hmm. to read most novels that I've, and, and there are, my reading path is littered with books that have, you know, I've read a quarter of, a fifth of, whatever else. La Belle Sauvage
1: is wonderful; it's a really was, great book. I know. I've heard nothing. I was talking to Peter Straub, who's reading it, and here's some, he's somebody who does not read a lot of fantasy and was mm-hmm. engaged in it the same way you were. And I, I need to do that. I, I have to confess, I didn't finish the original trilogy. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, I think they get harder to read as they go on. I mean, I, I think the first book, Northern Lights, is one of the finest young adult or middle grade or whatever you want to call them, novels mm-hmm. that I've read. Uh, I find the other two interesting but less engaging. For my money, La Belle Sauvage is more of a cousin
1: to the first book
0: ah, okay. than, than to you know, the later books. No,
1: that sounds okay. Very, very persuasive to and I should try to find that out.
0: But, but I I'm certainly.
1: Think, yeah, sorry, yeah. Oh,
0: no, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I, I absolutely agree with your uh, recommendation of and affection for the Sam Miller book, which I all think is marvelous, and I'm really excited about his next novel. I mean, um, Artist Irving's his debut. The second's coming along. You know, I think it's. I forget the title of the book, but it's more overtly genre, and is coming it's coming out
1: mid year. Yeah, it's not going to be a young album. One of the things that The Art of Starving did, and I don't know if this is a thing in young adult fiction uh, at all, but it takes some risks. It takes some risks because I remember before I'd read it, I was looking at Twitter comments about Mm -hmm. it. And I was looking at people uh, talking about this. This is a novel that valorizes eating disorders, which it does exactly the opposite Mm -hmm. if you get into it. But then I was reading uh, what I think is another one of the powerful novels, Victor Laval's The Changeling, uh, which is a fairy tale. It becomes more and more a fantasy as you go through it. And it's a point in, in The Changeling at which you think, this is going to be another kind of horribly tone-deaf fantasy in which a group of men are victimized by women who are witches, uh, which is meaning also. And then, And then it reverses that two or three times there's a there's – a, I, I don't know if this is a rhetorical strategy among novelists, and these are two very different novelists and very different novels between Sam Miller and Victor Laval. But in both cases, they were novels that began by going into territory that looked like it was going to be just really dangerous territory for a novelist to get into, getting through that and and reversing the expectations of the reader in a way that's very satisfying. Fair enough. There's an area that I rarely read in
0: and so any recommendations I have are almost meaningless and I know you get roped in by locus to being the default recommender thereof because arguably you read more of this stuff than anybody else I know but my favourite non-fiction genre book and I read some wonderful, actually I have to say some spectacular non-genre non-fiction during 2017 wonderful books mm-hmm. um, there was a great book actually called *Inglorious Empire by Shashi Tharoor about India. Which is a brilliant book. Brilliant book. Brilliant book loved it. It's a really really smart book about the, India, the history of India. But from my money hands down the best non-fiction genre book of the year was Paul Kincaid's book that he put together for you about Ian Banks, mm. which I love. I think you know Paul's a very smart insightful critic. I think the book's really well balanced and it's great to see uh, Banks's work put in context like that.
1: I put it in the context, which uh, as Paul would be the first to say, involves also significant input input from from Ken McLeod, who was Banks's friend since school days. So that's a very that's that's a book which I'm proud of in the series. Uh, we've got a couple of other books in the series that I'm going to be very proud of as well, including another one from Paul. Uh, I hope, uh, but but to some extent, that's a kind of model of of dealing with. Um, that kind of fiction. I mean, there, there are some odd books. There's a book uh, – now, I'm not, I'm not going to remember the the author's name uh, unless I look at it up because I did not uh, include it in my news. a book called Castaway Tales, which is a study of tales about castaways that goes up to and includes science fiction and fantasy okay. narratives. It's uh, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at a genre that we hadn't really thought of as a genre before. And one of the things that fascinates me is when somebody – usually a scholar – comes up with, with a way of defining a problematical part of science fiction and fantasy. A few years ago, uh, for example, there was uh, a book by Nicholas Ruddock called The Fire in the Stone, which was a study of what he called prehistoric fiction. And he's absolutely right that prehistoric fiction is partly science fiction, partly kind of anthropological fiction, partly kind of historical fiction, but it's its own thing. And these stories of castaways fit the same way. I should mention also there was uh, Harlan Wilson's book on J.G. Ballard, which was published in the series this year as well. And I'm going to get in serious trouble if I don't remember the others. But I, uh, but you don't. I don't. I don't. It's true.
0: (laughs) Which which probably says all that needs to be said. That kind of covers. I mean, without going into list listing lots and lots of stuff. And I know there there's myriad books we could talk about. You know, there really are. I mean, uh, I've got a list here. No, you want to do it? And I'm saying let's not. Let's just
1: go um, with the, the, the ones we those ones we like the best. No, the ones the ones, we, but the thing is, we like things in different ways. One of the novels we did not mention, uh, which is this, uh, we, we mentioned in passing Ian McDonald's second lunar novel. We didn't mention John Kessel's, The Moon and the Other. No, I do Which is a, a literary Moon colony novel of of the sort that you rarely mm. see these days. Well, I mean, you say that, but I think actually we're seeing more of them. Is I believe Stan Robinson is writing a, a Moon novel. Um. It could very well be, and I, I, apparently Andy Weir has written a moon novel, although I've not seen it. It's supposed to be awful. Don't tell anybody. Shh. I – well, the thing – okay, we, we haven't even gotten into films this year, and I've probably – two days after the, we record this podcast, I'm going to see the Star Wars film, but – Me too. The Martian is one of the few examples of a movie that I thought was pretty good, and I could not get halfway through the novel. Well,
0: what somebody said in talking about um – Artemis, which is the the book you're talking about, mm-hmm. is that the thing that made the Martian work is there weren't any other characters in it because what you find out in Artemis is that he's absolutely terrible at writing any interaction between characters at all. Which is kind that of an interesting. At- which is kind of an interesting kind of an observation. Yeah, you know, and look, there, there genuinely were piles of great books that came out this year. Um, yeah, but I kind of feel like there's all these sort of things that sort of list list sort of, you know. I mean, okay, if, we're, if I were just to turn to my side for a second and look at my shelf, right, uh-huh. see as I'm going to do. And we could have talked about uh, Provenance by Anne Leckie, which is a very good yeah. book. We could have talked about Spoonbenders by Daryl Gregory, which is a very good book. We could have right. talked about Yun Ha Lee's new book which is well worth talking about. Born by Vandermeer, we could have talked about easily. Uh, we could have spent more time on a smooth, Skin Full of Shadows. We could have talked about China Mayville's Kind of October, which is a left-field thing to include in in, in but it's nonetheless well, a genre writer doing his thing, right? There right, were a lot we could have about
1: great Bedard, her second novel in her um, House of Binding Thorns. Sure, absolutely. We could have talked about Cat Sparks'
0: Lotus Blue, which, is, mm-hmm. I mean, arguably sits in the same kind of, well, not does, not arguably, sits in the same climate change kind of territory as other books. We could have talked about um, uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, which we've talked about in the past, but which, you know, just descending into list. I mean, okay, one book I'm going to mention because uh-huh. this writer never, ever seems to get enough commercial kudos to my way of thinking, and that is, and Adam Roberts put together a really, really smart, clever, entertaining, engaging, interesting book in the Real Town Mergers, which I uh-huh. recommend very highly, and a book that you're going to have to go hunting for, because it's currently only available in a small press edition, which is Extra Solar by um, Nick Givers from PS, and will be out in an e-book later in the year, and has some great mm. stories in it, a very fine Nancy Crest story, a very fine uh, Kathleen and Gunan story. And also one that you have to go hunting for next year, um, Prime Meridian, which is a novella by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, which was kickstarted during the year and is counted as a 2017 story and is one of the best novellas of the year easily and which will be – I think it's going to be in Gardner's year's best and will be out in a commercially available
1: trade paper back in about June. Do you think overall that this year has been a good year in science fiction and fantasy? Okay, allowing that
0: I have had a mixed reading year myself in terms of being able to focus on it. Yeah, I think I think it has. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, okay, I'm not sure that's ever a meaningful question. But it's sure, not. but but sure, yeah, I think it was a good year. I think it was a good year beca- for, for a couple of reasons. It was a good year because we really began to see a broad variety of writers coming to terms with some of the serious issues that confront us in their fiction, Mm. that's a great thing. Uh, It was a good year because we saw a broad spectrum of first novelists come along, all delivering interesting and worthwhile books, even if they weren't necessarily completely successful. It was a good year because we saw a whole bunch of writers who've become uh, major writers in the last 10 or 15 years, deliver or continue to deliver Really strong, mature books. Book. I mean, the books we've not mentioned about, like, I'm looking at a list now and I'm going to fall into ah. it. Like, we didn't touch on Austral by Paul McCauley, which is a very fine no. book. But, you know, I mean, Provenance, I mean, Provenance is only Anne Leckie's fourth novel, but she's developed into a significant science fiction writer now. De- Spoonbenders by Daryl Gregory, his biggest and his best novel, is, I think, only his fourth or fifth book. Um, mm-hmm. Nora Jemisin. Nina Allen. Nina Allen, that's yeah, her second book, right? The Race. Mm-hmm. Um, Nora Jemison, uh, her, her latest book. Um, uh, Cameron Hurley. There's just a lot of stuff, and odd, oddball stuff in the corner. I mean, John, John Darnell had a very good book in Universal Harvester, mm-hmm. which is well worth seeking out. James Bradley, who's delivered all these major, interesting adult novels, had a very, very good YA book in The Silent Invasion that I hugely enjoyed. There was most in uh, Hamid's Exit West, which was kind of a bit of a left field choice. Uh, I think Terry Dowling stuck out, struck, uh, snuck out a new collection in The Night Shop, which was w- well worth your attention. So lots of stuff. Yeah, I think it was a good year. And for really solid, substantial reasons. I mean, you can always sit around and go, oh, well, you know, where was the single great dominant book of the year? Now, for me, for you and I, obviously, if the, the dominant science fiction novel was New York 2140. Other yeah, people may sure. or may not exist, agree with that, but it was there and it was a major book. Um, And then there's an awful lot of other media. A lot of – I mean, you and I don't really pay a lot of attention to graphic media very much. But uh, on on the big and small screen, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, you you couldn't not have been
1: engaged by uh, – I was going to say if I were were asked to pick out a writer who had a really good year, I mean, 10 years ago – well, 10 years ago and for the two or three years afterwards, that would have been George Martin. I would pick Nettie for as having sure. had a spectacular year. I mean, she not only had Akata Warrior out, she had uh, the second part of Benty, The third part is coming out. She has the Black Panther comics coming out now. She's been invited. She gave a TED Talk in Tanzania. She's been guest of honor at horror conventions, at ReaderCon, at Necronomicon. Uh, she's just blossomed very suddenly, uh, even though she didn't actually have a major quote-unquote novel out during the year. Uh, Well, I think she's a really mature talent, someone who you can rely on to produce major
0: work of interest, Mm. substantial, thoughtful, engaging, entertaining work. I mean, because that's it. It's like I I get kind of fed up with with both recommending and having recommended to me work that is worthy and worthwhile and important and significant. And you're going oh my god, can't I just have something that's entertaining as well? I mean, and I mean, the, the value of Austral is it's smart and it's really entertaining. Lunar Wolf mm. Moon is smart and it's really entertaining. Um, same f- same for, you know, I mean, a, a book to me like, 20, obviously New York 2014, hugely entertaining book. Oh. Um, so, th- there's a lot out there, and there's a lot out there for everybody, and a lot of stuff that we've barely got to. I mean, I'm becoming more aware, I guess, and f- trying to find time to read books like uh, Saad Hussain's Jin City uh, mm. stuff that's outside of what I normally read and I mean if I were to sort of see actually the trend out there that I am most encouraged by as well, it's not the novella trend which is great and which I'm a part of and one of the books that I'm most proud of to be to have been involved in comes out next year is a novella in that program it's that I think we're starting to see genre readers become a little bit more comfortable reading things outside of their own traditions there are narrative traditions, and science fiction is less affected, less affected by it than fantasy. There are narrative traditions from elsewhere in the world, which I think Western genre readers have been less comfortable reading. And I think we're beginning to build up enough context to begin to respond to those things in a really positive way.
1: That's a very interesting perspective, and we should devote a whole podcast to how readers learn to read other kinds of things. Uh, there is a sense, and I, to some extent, I'm, I'm, as far as I'm aware... There's not been any kind of uh, on, effective online Gamergate kind of response to the fact that science fiction and fantasy readers are more and more interested in reading uh, African or Arabic or uh, Asian-based science fiction and fantasy. I mean, one of, the, one, one of the other novels that came out this year we didn't mention, I guess it was this year, was the second volume in Ken Liu's trilogy, uh, no, it's last which year. is last year. Old was, yeah. Of uh, yeah, okay, is. but the point is uh, there's an absolutely fa- fascinating, um, uh, you know, fantasy series based on Chinese mythology, as Guy K's last couple of novels were, and readers are no longer complaining that fantasy needs to look like England. It doesn't. It no longer needs to look like the Shire. It, it, it can actually take place in uh, a, a, a a destroyed version of Paris in the case of Eliot de Bouddard, or for that matter a kind of Vietnamese uh, Aztec future in the case of Eliot de Bouddard. Yeah. The idea that all cultures are now uh, viable sources for science fiction and fantasy uh, is, is in some ways as important if not more important than what we usually talk about diversification. We have many different writers, many different voices who are now beginning to actually read science fiction that was not originally published in English or in England and America, but we're also increasingly fascinated, I think, by fantasy that doesn't retread the same Northern European root material over and over again. So then let me ask you, Gary, the same question. Was it a good year? I think so. I, I was looking at the list of things I reviewed this year, and one of the things I do when I look, because I'm thinking about writing the year end review column for Locus. Locus of February issue, and one of the things I always do is I print out the list of books that I've reviewed, and and I ask myself, how many of these are vividly still in memory? And sometimes uh, a book which I may have given a fairly good review to 11 months ago, I can't remember what was in it at all. From that perspective, this year, if I, if I go back and look at everything from I'm, – I'm going just – Passing Strange in January, The Stars Are Legion, the Cam Hurley novel, New York 2140, The Moon. There are novels that are vividly still in mind a year later. And to me, that's always a good sign yeah. as opposed to novel, which was, was pretty good at the time. but just sort of evaporated. It went away like popcorn.
0: Well, I guess with that, we might wind up. We're a little bit over an hour. Uh, oh but we can we can come back next week and maybe uh, as a, as a kickoff at least let's 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 start talking about what we're looking forward to next year.
1: And what and in, in in our case, what we're already reading for next year? Nah, man, I've not read anything from next year yet. I've got a couple of things. Well, I've got my January column, my fe- no, my February, February column. Yeah, I know, I know. Holy cow! <laughs> All right, never
0: ends, Gary. Never ends.
1: Well, well, at least we're back. We're back at the okay. end of the year. We are just just in the nick of time to save people from reading books they shouldn't pay attention to and to read the ones we say instead
0: i mean yes yeah, so, you know, if you're struggling to get through your your week without an episode of the crude street podcast this week is a good one for you and yeah i think i think the hiatus is done for now and we're, we're back and we'll be on for weekly for a while and we'll see what happens Sounds good. okay Not like fun glad to be back until until then i, I guess i'll see you around about christmas eve gary that's probably right. Actually,
1: Christmas Eve, I may not... Well, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Until then, talk to you next time. And this has been the Good Street Podcast.